Our scripture passage this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 10 as we read verses 26 to 33. Hear now the word of God. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May, we, may, be, may he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you give each of us the encouragement of Christ this morning, that wherever fear is in our lives, that you would root it out. Send your spirit to do this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's pray. To, or, you may be seated. We'll pray some more. We'll pray some more. Uh, We saw last week already that Jesus was very intentionally preparing his disciples to experience suffering and persecution. What did he do last week? Just a little bit of a review. He made sure that they undertook a measured preparation, right? He, he told them, beware, but don't be anxious. He said, be aware, but he also said, don't panic. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will bear you up at the time when you feel the most tempted to despair and the most tempted to fear or the most tempted to pull back on speaking the truth. He says God will ensure that his word prevails one way or another. It's on him, not on you. Right? That's essentially the, the core of what he had to say to us. But here's the thing. Today's passage continues on with that. He, he's not stopping there. He has more to say on this subject. And that is because Jesus cares about his people. He cares about our fears. He cares about the things that make us feel the most terrified and the most worried. Think about how much of Scripture is spent just telling God's people over and over again not to be afraid not to fear. Um, around 30 times in Scripture, God says one way or another, do not be afraid. And then around 40 times in Scripture, he says, do not fear. He cares about whether we are afraid. He cares about whether we're fearful. Why is that? Well, if you, if you look at Scripture, it seems like nearly every reference where he tells his people not to fear is accompanied by an assurance of who he is. It's remarkable how often these are paired together. In Numbers 14, 9, Israel is told not to fear the people of the land. He says, don't fear the people of the land. Why? 
because Moses says, the Lord is with us. He gives the reason, right? He, he, grounds the, he grounds it. He doesn't just say, hey, don't be afraid. You know, cheer up. But he actually gives you a reason not to be afraid. Um, God's presence is the basis of their lack of fear. This happens many times in the book of Numbers, right? Do not fear because of who I am, says God. A person who believes, and we're talking about, a diff, there's a difference between belief and affirmation in many ways, right? We all affirm that the existence of God, we affirm the presence of God, but a person who believes that God is with him or her, and who believes that God is the way he is revealed in Scripture, will not fear. And so our biggest problem is actually a disjunction between what we, what we affirm and what we believe, um, and what the scripture is saying is that insofar as we actually fear and disbelieve, that's a sign of unbelief in our lives. It's a sign of unbelief that Jesus wants to see addressed and he wants to see it rooted out. He wants to see that removed. Uh, think of other places in scripture where he does this. Deuteronomy 20. In Deuteronomy 20, God tells Israel not to let their heart faint. And then he says, do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you. So again, right, if you know who the Lord is, and if you believe him when he says he's with you, you will not fear and you will not panic. Jeremiah 42.11, God says, Do not fear the, the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. So he's actually speaking to them in the midst of fear, and he's telling them to change course. He says, Do not fear the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not fear him, declares the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. Um, I could keep going. There are just dozens of verses like this, each of them valuable, each of them full of substance. But over and over again, we see that not fearing is directly grounded in the person of God and who he is for us. And so when God's people don't fear, they're giving glory to God. I'm just, just showing you what's in the text, right? By not fearing, you're glorifying the one that you're trusting, right? The one that is helping you not to fear, he's getting glory because you're telling yourself, you are telling God, you are telling all the watching world, I can trust him. I can trust him. And so it gives him glory. Um. I think this helps us understand in part why he is so insistent that we not fear. Because our confidence and our resting in him is actually a testimony about him. It's a testimony of his trustworthiness and his value, right? Every time that we suffer, every time that we experience temptation to fear, it is God giving us an opportunity to testify that he is glorious and that he is trustworthy. It's an opportunity. We don't always see it as that when it's coming, right? It's usually the chipper, cheerful type person who says, wow, this is really an opportunity for you. And when you're hurting, you do not want that person in your life. You know, at least you don't feel that way. Um, that's why thinking about these things before the moment comes is appropriate, right? Because getting a, a message like that while you're suffering or while you're afraid is sometimes the last thing you want to hear. It doesn't mean you don't need to hear it, but you don't want to hear it then. So our, our fear is like, 
Our fear is like an opposite testimony. Uh, when we are afraid, it is like we are saying that God is not really who he says he is, right? We might say that God is good. We might say that God is trustworthy. We might say that God cares for us. And we might really want to believe that. But in the end, what we say and what we feel reveals different conflicting beliefs. When we fear, on some level, we're saying that in spite of what he says about himself, we believe deep down he isn't really trustworthy. He isn't really good. He isn't really sovereign. He isn't really with us. Now, another reason he tells us not to fear is even simpler, though. This is just really straightforward. I shouldn't even have to say it, but I'm going to. The reason he tells us not to fear is because we don't have a reason to fear. We don't have a reason to fear. Um, it's not just about what we're saying when we fear. Sometimes it's just as simple as don't fear because you have nothing to be afraid of. Um, when you tell your child over and over again that there is no monster under the bed, you are telling them that because it's true. Right? There are other reasons. You want them to sleep better, too. <laughs> you want them to sleep better. You don't want them to get up over and over all night long. Um, but also just because it is a fact that there is no monster under their bed. Um, you don't want your child to be afraid of something that isn't there, and so you just say it over and over and over again. And I don't know, not all of my children are like this. So don't, don't, nobody, none of them get to complain. I talked about them in the sermon today. But it is possible to tell your child that there is no monster under their bed, and they continue to believe that there is, right? And... And our fear is, is something like that, right? Jesus tells us not to be afraid because there's nothing to be afraid of. And from God's perspective, and that is the real true perspective on our circumstances, it's, it's actually true. But what about our perspective? From our perspective, um, we do fear because we imagine things, because we place things there that we're afraid of, things that, that aren't actually problems and yet, and yet we're so limited and we're so human that we refuse to see them from God's perspective. And Jesus says, look, I'm coming in and I'm giving you God's perspective on your, on your suffering. I'm giving you perspective on your fear. I'm giving you perspective on all this stuff that you imagine. And Jesus is giving more reasons why we should not fear this morning. And so my, my hope for us is, is really straightforward. My hope for us is that we will take away the main point Jesus has for us, that we shouldn't be afraid. There's nothing to fear for the reasons that Jesus enumerates here this morning. And so my, my hope is that we would not acknowledge, not just acknowledge what Jesus says and then go on fearing, right? That's, that's not the goal. <laughs> the goal is not for us to hear an interesting sermon on fear and then yet still our life is full of paralysis. Instead, the desire here is that we would take in what Jesus says, that we would believe it in our bones and not just say it with our mouths. So what does Jesus say? First, he says, do not fear for all will be revealed. Second, Jesus says, do not fear for all will be well. And then third, he says, do not fear for all will be Christ. And so my prayer is that God would, would use this text today to continue to steal away excuses from us, that he would continue to steal away the reasons why we are filled with fear so that eventually we think, of what can I be afraid? Whom shall I fear? God is on my side. That we would actually, that that would 
in all honesty, pour out of our own hearts, especially when the temptation to fear comes. And so let's just look first this morning. Jesus says, do not fear because all will be revealed. Uh, Look at verses 26 and 27 again. He says, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the, on the housetops. Now, I think the question we might ask here is, what is Jesus talking about? Um, this question is important because obviously it's the thing that he leads with, right? He says, don't be afraid. Why? And on the face of it, I'm going to tell you what this passage looks like to me, and I suspect afterwards some of you will tell me this is what you saw too. On the face of it, he seems to be saying that someday there's going to be a judgment, and those people who threaten Christians will have to answer for what they've said and done. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I bet a lot of hands would go up, and you'd say, yeah, I think that's what Jesus is saying. However, think about this. Typically in the gospel, when it talks about things that are hidden being revealed, it's actually talking about the gospel itself. The message that God would become man and reveal his cho- and, and, and redeem his chosen people. It was there in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Um, Jesus prays later in Matthew that God had hidden these things from the wise and understanding and what revealed them. To little children. So something that was hidden is now revealed. What is that? It's the gospel. In Colossians 1.26, Paul says that Christ is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, right? This is a way over and over that scripture actually talks about the gospel. This is not the typical language scripture uses to talk about judgment day. And so it, it seems like Jesus could be saying one of two things here. He could be saying this. He could be saying, don't fear them. Why? Because one day there will be a judgment. And whatever they do to you, they're going to be held accountable for. There's a judgment coming and God will not forget what was done to you. Um, There's a long heritage of moments where the psalmist brings his hurts before the Lord. And what does he ask God to do? He asks God to remember the sins that were done against him. It's very possible that's what Jesus is, is, is doing here. That's one, that's one interpretive possibility. But the other is this. There, there's another plausible argument, I think, that, that Jesus is making here. Here's what I think Jesus is arguing. I think he's saying, do not fear them. Why? Because you have a mission to accomplish, and you will be the means of taking the gospel to the people of this world. God's mission is indestructible, and his mission will be accomplished. I actually think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think that's, I think that's the right interpretation. It's not as immediate to us, but I think it's the right interpretation. Why do I say that? Well, if you include verse 27, it makes all the sense in the world. Because read them both together again. Listen to it all as an argument here. He says, so, that's therefore, that's the conclusion of an argument. This is him saying the end of the matter, really. He says, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So see, verse 27 is is hard to make sense of 
if Jesus is encouraging us by making an appeal to the judgment day? Right? What is verse 27 doing there if he's talking about the judgment day here? It makes all the sense in the world, though, if he's telling us that we are meant to proclaim these truths. What I say to you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. He's talking about us going out and the mission that we have. At this point and in this place, he's not talking about the judgment. Now, it absolutely is true there will be a judgment. There will be a reckoning one day when we will have to give an account for all that we have thought, all that we have said, all that we have done. There will be a judgment where God's enemies of the gospel will have to give an account. There's no doubt about that, and so don't hear me saying that that's not happening. Jesus says something similar to this verse in Luke 12, and there he is talking about the judgment day. But what makes sense of the argument Jesus is making here this morning in this passage? What makes sense of verse 27? I think it's the promise that the gospel must go, the gospel will go, and it will not fail. Right? It's, it isn't the power of God an amazing antidote to fear? I think that it is, right? Just think about this. When we go, when the pressure comes, it, 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 it's coming upon us because of what we're there to do. We are there to tell the truth of Jesus to a world that John says did not know him and did not receive him. It is a hostile place that we are sent out into. But here the Lord Jesus is lifting us up with a different kind of encouragement. And his encouragement is the knowledge that his word will not fail. Jesus prayed that, his, that, that for his people, right? He told Peter, he says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And he prayed for them. He promised that the Holy Spirit would make sure that the truth of God was accurately and perfectly preserved. Not one of God's good promises to Israel ever failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. This word is sharper than any two-edged sword. He, he promises us that any who come to Christ will, will be raised up on the last day. Promise after promise kept. That is an incredible encouragement. This understanding also goes with last week's passage, right? If you remember, when Jesus talked about, uh, revealed what his highest priority was, what was it? It was the preservation of his message, right? His biggest concern was not, you're going to die, his, his biggest concern was not that. His biggest concern was, don't worry, the message is going to go forth. That's what he was telling his disciples. And this lines right up with that, right? Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. And unsaid, at least in that place, is, and you might die while you're saying it. But my priority is that you say it and that they hear it. Right? So his, his big concern is really not physical suffering and, and pain. It's not that he's indifferent to those things, but he is really deeply concerned that his message is preserved and protected. That lines up with what's happening right here in these two verses. We'll talk about physical suffering in a moment, but he's actually going to dismiss it. <laughs> he's going to dismiss it as a problem. Jesus is, is going to say, I'm not worried about physical suffering. Instead, Jesus puts a primacy on his word. He puts a primacy on the preached word being proclaimed to a world that needs it very badly. When Jesus thinks about persecution coming, what is he anticipating? Will the word go? Will the truth be proclaimed? And, and what he's saying in these verses is a reassuring yes. 
That's what he's giving us. And the thing that occurs to me, and I suppose the challenge and the question that I would ask you to consider is, are Jesus's priorities your priorities? When you think about future suffering, what is the first thing that goes through your head? Are you more concerned about comfort and security and safety? Is that what you think Jesus is promising? Is that what you think Jesus is concerned about based on what we see in the text here? Do you need to shift in your thinking toward a more gospel focus than you perhaps have right now? Um, are you worldly in your ambition, right? Have you, have you forgotten what Jesus values? Have you, have you begun to see the creeping preference for your own life, your own prosperity, your own comfort, and forgotten that Jesus wants his message to go? Will you let your priorities be shaped by Jesus? Will you let your priorities be shaped by his example? If so, let me suggest we should be more concerned about the spread of the word and the gathering of the harvest than we are about the spread of temporal comforts for the church. It's a hard thing to say. I love comfort. But Jesus loves the message. And he loves this message because he loves sinners and because this is a message that saves sinners. And so let's, let's learn to love this message and let's learn to believe in the saving power of this message as much as Jesus does. And let's be agents of the spread of that word. That's really his application here, right? His, his application is proclaim it on the rooftops. If you wonder what the application is, he gives the command right there. He gives an indicative. This is what's true. This is what's re real. And then he gives the application, if we'll hear it, proclaim it on the rooftops. And the second, Jesus tells us, don't fear because all will be well. Um, listen to verse 28 to 30. He says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I call this point all is well, all will be well, because, well, I just really wanted it to alliterate nicely. I wanted it to go together well. Uh, without the explanation, it sounds a little Buddha or something like that. Um, but that's why it's only a point. You've got to listen to the whole, the whole, the whole point. Um, why do I call it all will be well, though? Well, look together. Like for, for many of us, there are, are very few things more intimidating than the idea of someone wanting to physically hurt us, right? If I, if I mention things that you're afraid of, you might not be afraid of someone physically hurting you, but have you ever been somewhere where there's a physical fight going on or a physical altercation coming? Suddenly it's terrifying. Um, look, Jesus is speaking worst-case scenarios here. He is confronting what may be, for some of his followers, their worst fears, right? P people are afraid to hurt. People are afraid to die. Um, but he's like, please believe that the, worst, that, that the worst is not that bad that they can do. The worst is actually not dying. He, he wants to convince his listeners of that, that there is something worse than dying. What's the most these people can do? They can kill the body, right? That's... That's bad, right? I, I don't want to die. I actually, to tell you the truth, I don't mind dying, but I don't want to hurt. If I could find a way to do one without the other, that'd be great. And I, and, I, and I don't want the people I love to hurt either. And maybe you feel the same way. Well, Jesus says, 
Yeah, dying is scary, but it is not the worst that someone could do, right? Jesus doesn't even think this argument is, is a reach. This is not him desperately trying to look for a silver lining. This is Jesus trying to get us to shift in our thinking. Death is just a stepping stone to life. And, and here's the thing. It is the best that the enemy can deploy against us. And, and, and it isn't even enough. It isn't enough if you belong to God. Death is actually a terrible instrument in Satan's hands because it can't do what he, what he wants. When I say it's a terrible instrument, I mean it doesn't do what he wants, right? Uh, Satan wields the power of death, and death can't do anything to somebody who belongs to the Lord, right? Now, here's the thing. The fear of death, well, that can be quite powerful. Death can do nothing to us. We're untouchable. We're invincible to it. And yet the fear of death, well, that, that can do something else to us, right? And we, we often fear this thing that's really nothing. It's really nothing. It's nothing to us. United to Christ, Jesus says, they can't touch your soul. I read from Polycarp last week. If you remember, we read from Polycarp, the early church father. He lived during the time of the Apostle John. He knew the Apostle John. In the 150s, he refused to burn incense to the Roman gods. And we heard already what Polycarp said when they were about to burn him to death. But I want you to hear his perspective one more time. Listen to Polycarp again. Eighty and six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? And then here it is right here. You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season. And after a little while is quenched but you're ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that's prepared for the wicked. You see what he's, he's got? He has taken what Jesus is saying here, and it's become a part of his soul, so that when the moment comes, it pours out of him. I'm not afraid of you. You can't do anything to me. Do you carry the conviction of Jesus with you so that it, it's a fire in your belly? Like whatever you face, could you deploy this? Has it penetrated your soul that there is a fate worse than death? There is a fate worse than loss. Jesus thinks there is a fate worse than death for the Christian. Do you know what it is? A silent mouth. That's what he's saying. Something worse than dying is if you won't speak. A gospel that falls to the ground unspoken. A testimony wasted. An opportunity not taken. The chance to speak replaced with sealed lips. For Jesus, that is worse than death. Make this a matter of your own prayers. Don't be shaped by the world. Let Jesus' priorities shape you. In some ways, though, verse 28 is really what Jesus has been leading toward with his encouragement, right? Jesus has been telling us, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, then in verse 28, he actually says, here's who you should actually fear. Don't fear someone who can't touch your soul. Don't fear someone who can, who can only hurt you. Don't fear someone who can only threaten you or take your stuff. Don't fear someone who can shake fists or threaten you with weapons. Who should you fear? He says, fear God. Fearing God is the antidote of fearing man. Jesus is not pressing us away from fear altogether. He, he actually wants to replace bad fear with good fear. We need to have the right object of fear. He says, rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. 
He doesn't want fearless people. It's not the point. Here, Jesus is talking about hell again, right? He's, he's not talking about annihilation of the soul. He's not saying that people go to hell for a season and then they just sort of blink out of existence. That's not what he means by destroy. Because we know from other passages that hell is eternal, that the smoke of hell's fire goes up forever and ever. It doesn't stop. That means it's not complete destruction. Jesus is saying that to be sent to hell is to be destroyed, right? It is the worst thing that can happen to a person. It's worse than death. And the judgment day will come. And Jesus is saying we should be more fearful of hell than we should be of death. We should be more fearful of silence than we should be of death. There's this odd balance here, right? Believers in Christ have nothing to fear from hell. By faith in Jesus, we, we know a salvation in which perfect love casts out all fear And yet there is a type of healthy fear that we ought to have for the Lord, Jesus says. There is, I think, and I believe this is not a caricature, but there is in the modern church a lack of the fear of God. Um, I see it in myself too, so I'm talking about the world and I'm talking about a pressure within my own heart as well. But And I hope you don't sense it here at Evergreen, but just like the rest of the world, we resist temptation. And we have to resist the temptation to have a lack of fear of God. Um, I can be guilty of fearing man. I can be guilty of fearing criticism. I can be guilty of fearing disappointing you all. And I can and have been guilty of not asking what does Jesus want and instead saying, how can I avoid being criticized? How can I be perfectly beloved by everyone? Perhaps there's a way to have it all, to do what God wants, and also keep everybody happy and not hear any complaints ever. And I have to repent of that thinking in my own heart. I'm not exempt from this. I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about me here. But what about you? Have you forgotten the fear of God in your own life? Do you fear men more than you fear the Lord? Many in the church today would try to steer you away from thinking this way altogether, right? They don't want you thinking about fearing God. And in the contemporary church, there is this real push to paint God as approachable, friendly, and toothless. And and in some quarters of the church, there is this sense that our job is to be marketers and influencers for Jesus. How can I make him seem approachable? Um... How can I smooth down Jesus' rough edges? How can I make Jesus more friendly? How can I make Jesus more feminine? How can I make him more approachable? Um, If I might get a little crass, there's sort of a version of Jesus out there in the world that sort of paints him as like the perfect boyfriend. right? He's like the perfect boyfriend. And and some, some churches and some preachers, and especially worship songs, set that before us, right? This idea that I'm going to sing a love song to a man. Uh, and we do love Jesus. And yet when we romanticize, which is very much what happens in many churches, we romanticize the relationship between us and Jesus, you have a couple of results, a couple of things that happen. Probably more than two, but just two for, for now. One is that it convinces men that Christianity is not for them. Right? Because... The idea of singing a romantic-sounding love song to a man is just never going to feel right in a man's mouth and ears. And if the church 
keeps up, what happens is they're going to keep wondering why are so many women going to church and why do so many men stay home or go fishing? Um, that's one potential possibility of what happens when we remove the fear of God from worship and instead try to smooth things down. There's a second result of this smoothed down sort of boyfriend version of Jesus that we sometimes see preached in the church and, and sung about in the church. Um, and the result is that there will not be a fear of God in such churches among such Christians. So each time that we come to worship, for example, there should be a weightiness. There should be a weightiness as we approach. And not because we want a church to be uncheerful or unjoyful in its atmosphere, right? We're, we are really a very happy people in this church. In fact, we were in the office, the elders were praying, and uh, as we were praying, we were just thanking God that we could hear such joyful people out here uh, speaking together, sharing with each other, greeting each other. There is a joy in the atmosphere here. And yet, what were we praying in there? We were praying in part that there would be a weightiness of the glory of God, that we would have a sense that we're coming into God's presence, that he's not just some other person just like each of us, but that there is something about him that is high and holy and set apart. And so we're, we're meant to be balanced in that respect. God is wild. We cannot control him. We ought to fear God. Uh, we ought to fear God more than we fear men. Um, we ought to fear God more than we fear death. We ought to fear God more than anything else. And depending on your church background, you're either doing vigorous head nodding, at least on the inside, or you're shrinking back like, what kind of place did I come into this morning? Uh, he doesn't want God to be friendly. Um, and that's not the case, of course. We, we need to be told this again and again, though. We should fear God. But in Christ, we also do not need to be afraid of God. We fear God without being afraid of God. Yet here's what's so unexpected. Just at, this, at the moment when Jesus tells us that we should fear God, what does he follow it up with? He follows up with reassurances. You see, fear of God is not like fear of men. Fear of God is not being afraid of God. When you fear God, you're more secure. You're more safe, not less. When you fear God, you won't be afraid of dying anymore. It's one of Jesus' gifts to his people. He says, come to me, fear me, and you need not ever fear death again. What a gift. right? What a, a gift. The very thing that vexes the world, the very thing that everyone around you is so freaked out about, is the very thing that Jesus lifts off of us when we place our faith in him and when we fear God. Third, Jesus tells us, do not fear because all will be Christ. Look at verses 31 to 33 again. He says, he says, Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. We come to the end of Jesus' reassurances here this morning. And what is he saying? He's saying, it's another fear not saying. Right? He says, fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What does it look like not to fear? He says, if you don't fear men, then you will acknowledge me before men. Right? That's what he's, that's what he's getting at here. So if you don't fear men, you'll acknowledge me before them. If you don't fear men, you'll do what I tell you. And maybe this whole time you've been like, what does Jesus mean by fear? 
You know, there are people who, who like their words defined. I was in a seminary class, and I, I think it was Charlie Wingard who said, if you ever lead off a sermon by saying, Webster's Dictionary defines fear as, <laughs> then you are preaching a terrible sermon, is what he said. <laughs> so I'm not going to Webster's. But maybe it's a good idea for us to say, wait a minute. I thought I knew what fear was, but Jesus talks about fear and its consequences differently here. Have you figured this out yet? What, what has Jesus repeatedly equated fear with? He equates fear of men with silence. Silence is the fruit of fear of men. And he equates not being fearful with speaking, with acknowledging. When you fear man, what do you do? You're silent about God. When you fear God, you're vocal about God. All right, that's, that's, that's actually the outcome of both of these things. Fear of man equals silence. Fear of God means let's speak. And this is what Jesus wants for you. He wants fear of God so that you can do your part, ultimately, really, he's saying, in obeying the Great Commission. Each of us has a part to play, and each of us is plagued by fear. And Jesus says, let me take that from you. The spread of God's fame throughout the world is too important for us to be paralyzed by the fear of men. I hope the argument Jesus has been making is, is sinking in to each of us, right? We, we have every reason to fear God. We have every reason to spread his name far and wide. He's shooting down all of our excuses to fear men. And, and I hope that that's what he's been doing for you over the past week, right? Jesus is playing whack-a-mole with our, our fears, right? He's been answering my fear of man with these texts. I came back to this sermon today as I was reading it, and I thought, Lord, your timing is exquisite. Would, would you hear it and know that it's for you too? Would, would you be faithful and would you, would you speak? Would you cease fearing man and would you fear God instead? When you see silence in your own heart, would you see that as a sign of the fear of man? Would you identify it and call it what it is? I mentioned already, I struggle with the fear of man. I have to fight against it all the time. And I will do this. I will, I will renew my own commitment today as your pastor to do what I think is right and to preach the truth without compromising. Right? How, can I, how can I read what Jesus says here and then seek to make men happy with what I preach? I'd be a hypocrite. And so I'll make that commitment, but would you do the same? Now listen, I know that it is the easiest thing in the world for your pastor who has nothing to fear from the culture to tell you that you shouldn't be afraid. Um, it is cheap sounding for me to say, don't be afraid. But many of you work in publicly traded companies. You work in places with job training programs that drag Christians through the mud. Uh, many of you work in places where you could be fired just for going on social media and saying what Christians believe. I understand. Uh, I do. I know. It is easy. It is cheap for me to tell you to bear witness to Jesus. Easiest thing in the world. I just said it, and it came right out of my mouth. Um, it's something else to hear someone tell you to give it all up when, you, when it could cost you everything. And that's why you shouldn't listen to me. Adam, in his experience, has not been threatened the way that some of you feel threatened at your jobs or in the rest of the world. My words could be cheap, right? Maybe the pastor doesn't know how hard it is, but here's what I want you to hear. When Jesus says, do not fear them, his words are not cheap. His words are not cheap. He lived it out. He lived under the threat. 
He lived under the, under the cloud. He drank the cup. His words are rich. My words are cheap. Don't listen to me. Listen to Jesus, right? He drank the cup all the way to the bottom. He suffered all the way. He never yielded. He faced the mob. The threat was, was real. They destroyed his body. He went all the way. He lived it out. He did it. Yet what does Jesus say? He says they cannot destroy the soul. And, and in case you're, you're tempted to think, oh, well, Jesus was just a stoic. He just marched there. I saw those shows in those movies. He just kind of has a halo and it drove him and he, everything was easy for him. No, Jesus was afraid of what waited for him at the cross. He had emotions about it. He, he wept. He told God, if there was some other way, remove this cup from me. Yet his fear of God was stronger than his fear of man. And Jesus says, follow me in this. Follow me in this. And when he followed the joy that was set before him, what did he do? He endured the cross. And what he found was that even though he faced horrible torture, he actually had nothing to fear. Because he found the rest of his father. He found joy. He was raised on the third day by the Spirit. God's enemies were the toothless ones. And these truths transfer right over from Jesus to us. It's not like, oh, he's over here. That was him. That's history. That's, that's just something that happened in time. But look what Paul says in Romans 8.11. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. It's not just a study of history. What he had you will get. Paul is saying not to fear. Jesus is saying not to fear. God today is telling you not to fear. Will you take it to heart? Let's pray. Father, it is easier to talk about not fearing man than it is to actually stop fearing man. We confess to you that we have almost certainly feared man when we ought to have feared you. And yet you love us. Would you work a change in us? Would you give us deep convictions to believe what Jesus says today? Persuade us by his arguments, yes, but work in our hearts so that we hear more than arguments. Make us to hear the very words, love, and promise of Jesus himself. In whose name we pray, amen.